Jesus and the miraculous catch of fish. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them. Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were able to haul the net in because they were not able to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard, heard him say this, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net dragged in the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me.
Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrea. Good evening, everyone. Uh, It's great to be here. My name's Daniel. I'm a member of the church family here. And yeah, really looking forward to um, speaking to you this evening. Um, So this is the Sunday after Easter, and we're going to be continuing to look at some of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances. Um, And in particular, we're going to be looking at, unsurprisingly, the passage that we've just had read, which is very fortuitous. Um, Like all good sermons, my sermon has three points. Like some anatomically unusual animals, my sermon also has three buts, as in a however. Um, Most risque joke I've ever gotten in a sermon, but I think I pulled it off. These three points are... Um, both reflected by the way that Jesus interacts with Peter and by the way that Jesus reacts to us. Namely, that Jesus comes to us, Jesus restores us, and Jesus sends us out. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence among us this evening. We pray now that as I speak and as we listen, would you be speaking to each one of us? Would you helping us to hear the words that you have for each one of us today? and helping us to recognize your presence among us. Amen. So, my first point is that Jesus comes to us. And I think this is really important to notice in this passage because it's quite sort of subtly thrown in. But what we see in this passage is not the disciples seeking out Jesus after his resurrection, but Jesus seeking out the disciples. We see this in verse 4 of our passage. Um, The disciples have just gone out to fish, They are um, on a lake doing fishy things, not fishy things, um, fishing-related activities. And Jesus, while they're doing their fishing, comes to them and stands on the shore. Likewise, after they've pulled in their haul of fish, they come to the shore. And at the shore, there's a fire there already. And you may wonder who's going to be providing the fish, the fishermen who've just generated 153 of these in their net. But actually, when they get there, there's some fish already on the fire. Jesus has already provided the food that they're going to be eating. And we see this as a theme throughout um, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. This is the third time that Jesus um, appears um, post-resurrection in John's Gospel. And in the previous two appearances, it's also Jesus coming to the disciples. In John 20 and verse 19, the disciples are hidden away in a room for fear of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus comes and stands among them. Likewise, with the second appearance, the disciples are again, a week later, locked in a room, and Jesus comes and stands among them. In the Emmaus Road, the disciples are walking along, and Jesus comes and walks along with them. In all of these cases, we see that the disciples are doing their thing, and Jesus comes and meets them exactly where they are. And crucially, this is what we see at Easter in the story of the cross. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says this. 
When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And in this passage, we see all the things that Jesus has done. He has forgiven us. He's cancelled our charges. He's nailed it to the cross. He's disarmed the powers and authorities. He's made a public spectacle of them. He's triumphed over them by the cross. That's what Jesus has done in this passage. What have we done in this passage? We have been dead in our sins. That is the entirety of our contribution at this point. When we were unable to do anything as part of this, this is where Jesus is doing all of these actions. And we see this in our own lives as well. For all of us here who are Christians, we will have had that encounter with Jesus. Some of us may be looking for that encounter for the first time ourselves. But the person of Jesus is not one who hides away, making us find him. He's one who comes to us. Part of the communion liturgy reminds us that when we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. This reminder again, that regardless of where we are, Jesus comes to meet us there. But this also brings us on to our first but which is that Jesus comes to us, but we also need to come to Jesus. And we see this in Peter's reaction in John 21 and verse 7. We see that as soon as Simon Peter heard him say he is the Lord, he wraps his outer garment around him and jumps into the water. Um, now, this is probably not the most efficient thing he could have done. Um, I don't know if any of you have spent much time in water with clothes. I did some lifeguarding when I was younger. Didn't save any lives, didn't lose any, so... Can't that as out is even. But if, if you're trying to do anything with clothes, you're sort of going very, very slowly. And you can imagine him sort of diving into the water, doing this grand gesture, and then just sort of huddling very slowly along with the disciples who are not that far away from shore, just sort of rowing alongside him, looking at him a bit funny. And you can imagine that sort of confusion there going on. But the point is that Peter is really enthusiastic to go and see Jesus once he recognizes that that is who is on the shore waiting for him. And this is what's asked of us, not to deliver ourselves, not to provide our own salvation, but simply to enthusiastically receive Jesus when he comes to us. Revelation 3.20 says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And I think for some of us this evening, that's all that we really need to hear. We just need to be reminded that wherever we are, Jesus is coming to meet us where we are. My second point is after Jesus comes to us is Jesus restores us. And this is what Jesus does with Peter. For this, we'll need some context from John 18, which will be almost certainly illegible on the screen. But in John 18, which is just before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, uh, Peter has boldly claimed that he is never going to deny Jesus and then promptly denies Jesus three times. And this is obviously a very significant moment for Jesus. Jesus and for Peter, but specifically for Peter. Um, and in John 21, in our passage, we see basically a replaying of these events. Both events take place in early morning. Both events take place around a fire. And in both cases, Peter is asked the similar question three times. In John 18, he's asked, are you a disciple of Jesus? And three times he says no. In John 21, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time, Peter says yes. 
And in so doing, Peter gets this second chance to come back to God. But is this his second chance? This brings me on to my second but, which is that Jesus restores us, but not just once. Now, on the previous um, section, I had a picture of Peter. I've looked around through very sort of ancient um, imagery, and I found, I think, the best picture of Peter that I can find, um, which is this one. Um, yeah, I think this is a very good depiction of Peter, because Peter is always very enthusiastically throwing himself into things and not really ever being entirely sure what he's doing. And I think that enthusiasm is really great, but it also means that Peter messes up a whole lot. Um, there's a list of just a few places uh, in the Gospels where Peter gets things wrong. Um, he fails to understand Jesus' parables. Um, when Jesus says that the Messiah has to die, Peter rebukes him and tells him that's not going to happen, getting to the point where Jesus has to tell him to get behind me, Satan, because you have in mind things of man, not the things of God. At the Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah are standing with Jesus, he panics and proposes a camping trip. Just at the Last Supper, um, just a few days before these events, um, Jesus comes to Peter and says, I need to wash your feet. And Peter says, no, never, you'll never do that. And then Jesus says, no, I have to. And then Peter does a complete 180 and says, yes, wash my feet and my face and my hands and my arms and my kidneys and everything. And um, Jesus is like, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. Just, uh, just feet is all right. He falls asleep when Jesus asks him to pray. When the servants come to arrest Jesus, Peter cuts off one of the servants' ears. And ultimately, Peter denies Jesus three times. If you just looked at this and you were looking for a CV for a leader of the church, I'm not entirely sure how you would feel about that. But every time Peter fails, Jesus is there to restore him. And crucially, we see that in this passage as well, Jesus' restoration of Peter. But not only is this not the first time that Jesus has needed to restore Peter, it's not even the last I've picked out at least two more occasions after this that we have recorded where Peter has messed up again. And one of them is literally the very next thing that he says. Immediately after this restoration, um, where Jesus has given him his commission, which we'll be thinking about in a minute, um, Peter immediately turns and points at John and says, what about him? What's he doing? And Jesus has to rein him in again and say, no, no, it doesn't matter. What, is, what we're talking about here is you following me here. You can imagine a golden retriever who's just come in after a long day of being muddy, going in the bath, getting nice and clean, going out and immediately jumping in a muddy puddle. This is kind of what Peter's done. Peter has been restored and immediately he gets things wrong again. And later on, we see that this is still happening. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he writes about having to oppose Cephas, that is Peter, to his face when he comes to Antioch. Because Peter is trying to separate, uh, trying to bring back together Jews and Gentiles by enforcing Jewish customs on the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, no, that's not what we need to be doing. And yet again, Peter needs this restoration. And then here's one more quote about Peter from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This Peter who has messed up again and again and again is the same Peter who Jesus has defined as the rock of his church. Even someone who fails as much as Peter is part of God's plan and is 
needing this restoration again and again. And I think it's one of the reasons possibly why Jesus chose Peter as his rock, because it's not what Peter has been doing, but it's what Jesus is doing through Peter. And this, I think, shows us something of God's heart for forgiveness. There's a parable, um, a part of um, Matthew's gospel, where Peter comes to Jesus and asks, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And you think about it. If someone does the same thing to you seven different times, that's, that's quite a lot of times. If you're forgiving someone seven times, you'd be forgiven, as it were, for thinking after the seventh time, that's it. But Jesus says, not seven, but 77 times. He's extending grace far beyond where it is reasonable for us to expect. And this displays to us the heart of God. Again, in communion liturgy, we're reminded that God is the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Elsewhere in the Bible, John writes that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the Psalms remind us that our sacrifice is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And I think for some of us today, that's exactly what we need to hear. We know, perhaps intellectually, that God has forgiven us, but we're aware that we're fallible and we're aware that we've messed up. And maybe there's a particular thing that we know we've been doing again and again and again, and we worry that maybe we're reaching the limits of God's forgiveness. This reminds us that the very nature of who God is is a God of forgiveness, a God who will forgive us and restore us again and again and again whether it's the seventh time, the 77th time, the 777th time. If we come to him repenting, then God will forgive us. And for some of us, I think that's what we need to hear. My third point is that Jesus sends us out. Having come to Peter and restored him, the next thing that Jesus does is give him his commission. John 21, verse 17 to 19 after Peter's third acceptance of Jesus, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And this is the call that Jesus has given Peter in his life. This is where Peter is ultimately called to go. Ultimately, according to, to church tradition, Peter himself was also crucified. But crucially, this is the call on Peter's life. And my third but is that Jesus sends us out, but not all, to the same calling. And I think this is really important for us to recognize. We see these two callings, we see two callings, in fact, in this passage. We see Peter's calling and we see the calling of the disciple who Jesus loved, which is often traditionally believed to be John, the author of the Gospels. And we see that both of these people have very different callings. Peter is called to go and to die for Jesus. And yet John grows up to old age and lives out his, um, his life in exile on Patmos, at which point he gets the vision that forms the book of Revelation. At some point during this period, he also wrote the Gospel of John. If Peter had carried out John's calling, then maybe the church wouldn't have been as widely spread as it was. If John had called out Peter's calling, then we wouldn't have two books of the Bible, and I would be 
not having a passage to talk about this evening. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. There are some people, like the disciples that Jesus calls to physically follow him. There are other people who specifically ask to physically follow him, like the man whom demons are driven out of. And Jesus says, no, your calling is instead to go to your home and speak to the people there. Some people are sent to the ends of the earth. Others, like in 1 Thessalonians, Paul commends them to stay and live quiet lives in the environment that they find themselves in. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives this picture of the church as a body of Christ. And as members of that body, we all have individual roles. And we also have things that we are called to do as part of that. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. But I think there are three mistakes that we can often make when it comes to thinking about our calling. The first is not doing enough. And this is a problem when God has set aside specific things for us to be doing. We all have our roles and our parts in the kingdom of God. We all have our things that God wants to use us to do. And if we're not doing those things, then the body is weaker as a result of it. If you've got an eye that's refusing to see, that's not a very useful eye. But potentially just as awkward or just as problematic is us doing too much. Because again, that causes the same problem. It means that we're not always doing the things that God has set aside for us to do because we're spending so much time doing other things instead. I mean, if you've got an eye that is trying to see but is also trying to pump blood around your body and also trying to digest food and move various parts of the body, that's, again, not a very useful eye because it's not doing what it's designed and supposed to be doing. So equally, if we find ourselves doing too much, that can be an indication that we're not necessarily following what God is calling us to do. And the third mistake, which I think is even more subtle, is following someone else's calling. And I think here it's really important to draw a distinction between the things that we as a church, as a corporate body here in Leamington, in the UK and across the world, are called to do, and what we as individuals are called to do. Because there are lots of really, really important, valuable, good, godly things that we as a church are called to do. It includes social justice, working in politics, working for racial inequality, trying to um, support the environment, doing preaching and teaching, prophesying, working with children and young people, helping the homeless, helping the poor, feeding the hungry, visiting the prisoners, visiting sick people, offering practical support, doing overseas ministry, doing charity work, theological study, public debates, pastoral ministries. As a church, we can do all of these things, but as one individual, we can't. And sometimes, this is because, sometimes we can find ourselves drawn towards things that other people are called to because they are good things. And having a true and really good understanding of what God is calling us to do will inevitably mean that there are really good, godly things that are out there to be done that are not to be done by us as individuals, but are just to be done by the church as a whole. And so getting this really good, deep understanding of what God is calling us to do will inevitably require us to not be taking part in some things that are really good, godly things. And often we can get this a bit wrong. Sometimes we can feel like there's a hierarchy of the things that we need to be doing in God's kingdom, and that it's all important that all of us collectively focus on the very top item. And there's a reason that I, as a human, am not a big pile of kidneys. Kidneys are valuable, but we don't need an entire body of them. We don't need an entire body of eyes. We don't need an entire body of fingers. 
We need diversity within the body, and we need us to be doing the roles that we've been set aside to do. As St. Paul seeks to become a mission hub, um, I think there'll be opportunities for us to be exploring these, and I think there'll be chances for us to accidentally fall into all three of these camps. For some of us, we'll find ourselves not doing as much as we should be doing, and the call from God is to be taking up more. Some of us will find ourselves trying to take on too much, and as part of being involved more in the work of the missional hub uh, as part of St. Paul's, we'll need to put down some other things that we're doing. And some of us maybe have got swept up in the enthusiasm of someone else rather than listening to where God is calling us in our own individual lives. By far the most valuable thing we can do in God's service in bringing his kingdom on earth is to follow the calling that he has put on each one of our lives. And it's worth taking the time to work out what that is. So those are our three points. That Jesus comes to us, that Jesus restores us, and that Jesus sends us out. As we come to close, I think it's just worth taking some time to think about each of these things and think about where we are with these. For some of us, we'll just need to know Jesus' presence near us. We'll need to recognize that in our own lives. And it will be really good this evening to be meeting with Jesus again, or perhaps for the first time. For some of us, we just need to know that restoration. We need to know that there's that forgiveness that we can go to again and again. And particularly, perhaps, for some of us who feel trapped in some area of sin or some problem that we've run into again and again, to recognize that there is this forgiveness again and again for us. And for some of us, I think we just need to think about where God is calling us to be and what God is calling us to do. And this is something we need to do again and again as well as God moves us in the next phases of our lives. So would you stand with me? Um, and what we'll do is we'll spend a minute just praying and thinking about these things. Lord God, we thank you that you draw near to us. We thank you that you are here in this building with us. We thank you that you know each one of us intimately. You know where we are, you know who we are, and you know what we've done, and you love us. And we pray that you would be drawing near to each one of us here this evening. We thank you that you're a God of mercy and forgiveness. And we pray that you would be helping us to recognize that we are fully forgiven by you. Would you help us to be able and willing to draw near to you and to recognize your forgiveness here? And we thank you that you choose to use us in the building of your kingdom on earth. And we pray that you would give each one of us here clarity and confidence to know what it is you're calling us to do and to trust that you are qualifying us to do it. So let's just take a minute and listen to what God has to say on any one of those for us.